The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. This is a very special day for me, a very special episode, because I have in studio Ben Rhodes, who you all know and love, and Dan Shapiro, who this feels like a situation room reunion for us, because Dan was (laughs) senior director for the Middle East and North Africa at the White House. Then he was dispatched to be the U.S. ambassador to Israel. Now he still lives in Tel Aviv, where he's a distinguished visiting fellow at Israel's Institute for National Security Studies at Tel Aviv University. Dan, welcome to Los Angeles. Welcome to the show. It is great to see you. It's great to be here. Congratulations on everything you guys have done here in Cricket Media. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, as I, I told Dan, this was our shot at a resolute desk, and he was, you know, he's like, look, good you, first cut. You can do better. Yeah, yeah. you can do better. But uh, Dan looks the same that he did in 2008. That's yeah, you're, you're <laughs> ageless. A really little, little gray in the beard, but... Yeah. Uh, but it's distinguished gray. It's salt and pepper. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah, so it's a visiting distinguished gray. So it's great to be back with you guys and, and not being asked to manage some, like, crisis. Your time with Obama had such a wild trajectory. You did policy and outreach on the OA campaign. Then you ran the Middle East account from the NSC and the White House. Then you went over to Israel to be our U.S. ambassador. And, like, you were a celebrity. You were beloved. You spoke the language. People, you know, wanted to hear from you. What was the transition like for you leaving the sad cocoon of the NSC and going to the embassy? Well, when we knew we were going to have a new ambassador in the summer of 2011, and we had a you know very good uh, career ambassador there, it was during a period when President Obama was encountering some of his uh, disagreements with Prime Minister Netanyahu over mm-hmm. Israeli settlements. And maybe partly by our own doing, we didn't do a lot of outreach to the Israeli public so they could hear from Obama in his own voice and uh, really understand you know, what he was trying to do and what his commitments were. Mm-hmm. And the idea arose within the White House. Eventually, the president uh, agreed with it that having somebody who, of course, had a good relationship with him and really knew his policies from the inside, had already worked with and had a good relationship with Netanyahu, but as importantly, had the uh, familiarity with Israeli society and culture and the people and, of mm-hmm. course, Hebrew knowledge, which I, which I speak, to really be his voice in Israel was a, uh, was a big part of why he asked me to take on that role. So the biggest change for me was stepping out from the sort of uh, behind-the-scenes role that an NSC staffer makes uh, plays uh, to being a public figure. Uh, Did you miss pushing paper up to the suite, which is where the National Security Advisor sat, and then getting it marked up and sent back to you? I didn't. Uh, I like being my own boss. <laughs> yeah, uh, having know, like a staff. They tell you when you're uh, in the ambassador training uh, course at the State Department that, you know, this is a platform and you will have staff and you will have uh, an institution and you will have a budget and you can decide how to spend your time and where to put your focus. So I put a lot of my focus into speaking with the Israeli public, traveling around the country, meeting with Israelis who are very diverse in all their different communities all over the country, getting to know them, listening to them, speaking to them in Hebrew, doing media, social media, which of course was still sort of new for Mm -hmm. ambassadors at that time. 
And so, uh, yeah, that was uh, it was a big change, uh, having been a congressional staffer and then an NSC staffer, that behind-the-scenes role. But uh, it didn't take too long to feel pretty comfortable that I was uh, the voice that he wanted me to be yeah. uh, in the, to the Israeli public. It was cool to watch you and, and Mike McFall like, leave the NSC and, and take these huge public roles and do such a great job. And very easy relationships. Yeah, really yeah. challenging <laughs> situations. So this is a question for both of you. I mean, you alluded to some of this work, Dan, a minute ago. I mean, Obama spent a lot of time pushing to jumpstart the Middle East peace process. And, you know, incentives were offered to the Israelis, to the Palestinians. Pressure was put on uh, the Israelis and Palestinians. In 2010, uh, he hosted this huge summit at the White House with the leaders of the PA, the Israelis, uh, Jordanians, Egyptians, and the process failed. Do you think it was a mistake to invest all that time? And, And why do either of you think that ultimately those efforts just didn't work out? Well, I don't think it was a mistake, and it was something that President Obama committed to when he was running for president, and for all the right reasons. Uh, he argued uh, we as the United States have a strong, close connection with Israel. We have our own interests in Israel's security. We have moral commitments to Israel uh, as the fulfillment of uh, the, the Jewish homeland or the Jewish state in the Jewish homeland. And those are all things we should advance and promote and protect. And part of that, uh, not in any way inconsistent with that, is helping Israel end its conflict with the Palestinians, which also can achieve legitimate Palestinian aspirations for statehood in a two-state solution. And so it was the right thing to do. He did it really on the second day he was president. He appointed George Mitchell as a Mm -hmm. special envoy. And then uh, what you just described sort of unfolded. In retrospect, and I'm, you know, evaluating it and writing about it now, didn't uh, get my book published as fast as Ben did, but... got to get first out of the gate. (laughs) (laughs) In retrospect, uh, we were dealing with two leaders uh, who completely mistrusted each other. Obama and Netanyahu? uh, Netanyahu and Abbas. Ah, okay. Got it. (laughs) Who uh, were sort of playing for the failure and and the blame game that would follow the failure, who both faced, in fairness to them, very, very difficult domestic politics of publics who had sort of oriented toward uh, despair, that this isn't possible, there isn't a partner on the other side. Israelis saying, you know, we gave away land in Gaza and we got Hamas with rockets and we get bus bombs and Palestinians feeling like this was an occupation without end and uh, settlements Mm -hmm. expanding. And so it didn't work. Uh, We can all say that it didn't work in the first term with Mitchell, it didn't work in the second term with Kerry. Do I regret that we tried? No, I don't regret that we tried. Dan, I, you know, when I had to reflect on this in my book, you know, to give the shorthand summary, right, 2011, we tried direct talks, that collapses. Uh, sorry, 2010, we tried direct talks, that collapses. 2011, we tried to put out some U.S. principles on territory and security, that's rejected. 2012, we basically took these really positions trying to block action at the U.N., then 1314, Kerry tries his effort, that fails. I can look back and say that at key junctures, the Palestinians made decisions uh, to not move forward. So in 2010, mm-hmm. you know, they were holding out for another settlement freeze to keep talks going. 2011, they did not embrace our principles. 2012, they're trying to go to the UN to get recognition. And then in 2013-14, they did not embrace Kerry's terms of reference. That said, with, with the very important caveat that, you know, the Palestinians didn't take the leap. You know, Israel, in many ways, is the stronger party in the negotiation. And one of the things that I took away is, in my view, Netanyahu is not interested in a two-state solution. And he said he was after he became prime minister in 2009. But at every juncture in 2010, 2011, 12, 13, 14, when it got to a pivotal moment, he would always pull back And now, you know, we've seen him make statements that seem to suggest 
that he's publicly now f- no longer for two state solution. So, I mean, is there any way around the fact that whatever we were going to do, if you don't have an Israeli prime minister who supports the outcome of a two state solution, which I do think Abbas does, even though he hasn't had the the leadership, the will, perhaps the political skill and the courage to take a leap for peace. Do you think we ever had a partner in Israel, uh, in Prime Minister Netanyahu, for peace? You know, I think he went through a bit of an intellectual transformation. He had said, you know, for years as part of his political career, he had published books uh, against the creation of a Palestinian state. And then he did give the speech in 2009 where he said yeah. for the first time and the first Likud prime minister to ever say he was for a two-state solution. He said a Jewish state that uh, demilitarized Palestinian state that recognizes the Jewish state, which are, in my mind, legitimate caveats to that. And that was the basis on which we operated. And I, I say that I think there was intellectual transformation there, not only based on the speech, but on based on some of the private conversations we were having with him at that time. His, his seemingly new understanding of the imperative for Israel, for its future as a Jewish and democratic state, and even for its security of eventual separation from the Palestinians. So, you know, I give the credit for uh, what I think was a, a, an effort to explore it. Of course, it wasn't a perfect laboratory to test it either because of some of the weakness of the Palestinian leadership that you alluded to. It was unclear they were ever going to tell the hard truths to their people that would be necessary. And he also always tried to search for the golden political path to sort of not have to make the ultimate concessions until near the very end so that he could survive the uh, political blowback he would face from his own uh, political supporters. And that's probably almost impossible. You know, his, one of his predecessors, Ariel Sharon, blew up the Likud party in order to do the withdrawal from Gaza and created a centrist party. Yeah. And Netanyahu was just sort of not that, not that character. He wanted to try to do it from within his own political base. You know, I don't think – I think what President Obama said when uh, the Kerry talks collapsed in 2014 is still relevant and, and I think describes it accurately. We, we found that both leaders couldn't take certain key decisions that they needed to in order to advance from talks into an agreement for different reasons, for mistrust, mm-hmm. for – domestic constraints for, you know, maybe ideological reasons as well. And of course, now he leads, Netanyahu leads a, a much more right-wing government than he did at the time. And I think uh, with the collapse of the talks, and it's clear Abbas is now at the end of his career, he's not going to be the partner any Israeli leader would work with. He's sort of fallen back into the embrace of, uh, uh, of his, his old uh, views and his old uh, political uh, leanings, which you, you, know, you say yeah. is how he kind of articulates it now. He's saying, well, I'm, there's not going to be a Palestinian state on my watch. He yeah. says that openly now. Yeah. So, I mean, we're all waiting with bated breath to see what Jared Kushner's secret Middle East peace plan cooks up. I'm sure it will be brilliant and, and well thought through and well executed. But allow me to ask a, a even more cynical question, which was, I think for a long time, like there's a, there's a reason on the merits to get to a two-state solution, which is to help the Palestinian people get a homeland and a state to solve sort of intra-Israel issues. But there was also a sense that regionally, the failure to resolve the Middle East peace process was this major irritant with a whole bunch of other Gulf states as well, like the Saudis and others, Egyptians. I wonder if that's true anymore, right? I mean, Trump moved the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and there was not really a huge uprising or no one seemed to care. Trump cut off a whole bunch of aids to Palestinian refugees. There hasn't been some uproar in the Arab world. I mean, do you think that it's still this critical piece of diplomacy that we should prioritize over all these other things we could be doing? Look, I'm not even sure in our time it was the key to solving all kinds of regional crises. And, of course, many other crises erupted, uh, Yemen and Libya and Mm -hmm. Syria, that really had nothing to do with the Israeli-Palestinian 
issue. And uh, even if we'd had a two-state solution, we would still be dealing with all of those crises. I do think it is true, as you alluded to, that uh, most of these Arab states, particularly the moderate Gulf states, don't really care that much about the Palestinian issue. And they prioritize the security uh, alignment they have with Israel over threats, common threats they face from Mm -hmm. Iran and from the Sunni extremists uh, of the region. And so they're not that exercised about things like the move of uh, the embassy to Jerusalem or the Palestinian aid situation. And it's very clear there's a strategic partnership and it's mostly under the table, but increasingly out in the open uh, that Israel and the Gulf states are, are see each other as partners. There's still a pretty low ceiling on Mm -hmm. what can be achieved in the way of normalization. If you're going to talk about open relations, embassies, trade, tourism, uh, the kinds of things that uh, would really reshape the region and show that Israel is fully integrated into the region. My guess is most of those Arab regimes, even if they don't care so much about the Palestinians, aren't going to take the political risk of the blowback from their own populations Mm -hmm. or the propaganda value it would give to Iran, who could say they're the the holders of the Palestinian flame when the Arabs have thrown them under the bus to go as far as to really normalize and and open uh, public relations with Israel. Mm -hmm. Well, so, I mean, back in the U.S., I think traditionally support for Israel has been pretty bipartisan. I'm wondering if you think that that might change because, you know, Netanyahu was very vocal about his criticisms of Obama, both on settlement policy and then, you know, much more vocally on the Iran deal. He spoke for a joint session of Congress without checking with the White House, which is not the coolest thing to do. And then he has since fully embraced the Trump agenda that, you know, most of the Trump policies. Is there any concern in Israel about fully embracing the Republican Party and potentially decreasing support for Israel among Democrats? There is some. I get that question a lot when I give speeches in Israel. A lot of uh, Israelis will ask me, are we losing the support of Democrats? Are we losing the support of young progressives? Are we losing the support of younger American Jews? I get that ver- some version of that co- uh, question all the time. And, you know, I remember when President Obama was reacting to the prime minister's decision to give that speech in Congress, one of the main concerns he raised was this really cuts into the heart of the bipartisan nature of the U.S.-Israel relationship, mm-hmm. and it creates a partisan divide. It did on the Iran issue, maybe even to the president's benefit yeah. in terms yeah. of being able to yeah. get get uh, the Congress to sustain it. And then, of course, Trump becomes an accelerant of all of those yeah. uh, trends and, and the, the extreme Israeli embrace of Trump probably as well. My argument to them is, look, you can uh, see some or maybe erosion and there are, are new voices in the party and new voices among young progressives. Uh, who may not have the same historical associations with Israel and may be less sympathetic. And I frankly take on my shoulders and people like me the need to educate our own camp that you can have disagreements with Israeli policy, but we should sort of separate that from uh, do we support Israel's security, do we support its legitimacy, Mm -hmm. and I think it's possible to do both. What I ask from the Israelis is, you know, try not to make it harder for me. And so if there's uh, apparently no commitment toward a two-state solution, even trying to keep it alive for some later negotiation when there's different leaders, if there's expansion of settlements in ways that would make two states impossible, or if there's an embrace of Trump that seems to be insensitive to the vulnerabilities that so many uh, Americans feel about his presidency, you know, and you can always expect them to uh, understand that they're going to try to have the best possible relationship with the president of the United States. But Mm -hmm. if you treat him as kind of a messianic figure, even if just because you agree with some of the things he's done, that's going to alienate the, what, 50 percent of the country that Mm -hmm. thinks he's uniquely dangerous in American history. So there's a balance there that I'm I'm not sure is proper order. Does this worry you, Ben? Yeah. We talked to a lot of progressive groups and potential 2020 candidates. Yeah, I think there's a lot of dimensions to this. One is, uh, you know, Dan, you're right. I mean, I remember I used to have as part of my job for a year and a half meeting with uh, 
uh, House Democrats, including the entire community of Jewish Democrats in the House, to try to educate them about the Iran deal and, and hopefully secure their support. And when Netanyahu gave his speech to Congress, it was the single best thing for that effort. Exactly. Because people said to me, you know what, now this just looks partisan. You know, I was uncomfortable being in a different position than the Israeli prime minister. A lot of Democrats had kind of come up in their political careers and just kind of took it as a given that whoever the Israeli prime minister was, they were generally comfortable siding with that Israeli prime minister on matters related to Israel's security, mm -hmm. whether it's Palestinians or Iran. But that was such a partisan effort by Netanyahu that they could say and believe, you know, it wasn't a cover for them. They actually believed it, that, that this is just someone who's basically acting as an extension of the Republican Party or vice yeah. versa. And I do think that's dangerous for Israel's security in the long run. And it takes a few dimensions. You know, one is right now Netanyahu is getting kind of his wish list, right? The, the embassy moves to Jerusalem. There's no heat on settlement expansion. Uh, Ron deal was canceled. Ron deal was canceled. But, I mean, what happens two, three, four years from now when, you know, the situation for the Palestinians is even more dire and mm -hmm. that probably invites more international attention on it? Uh, or there's a new, you know, democratic administration that is not going to be fully in line with these views. Or the Iranian nuclear program has restarted because we've lost the constraints of the deal. I, I think right now it looks like two parties that are in kind of a sugar high together, the Republican Party and the Likud Party. But what the long-term consequences are of not resolving these problems of the Iranian nuclear program or the Palestinian issue, I think can still blow back on them. I think in the United States, there's a couple of risks. You know, one I just want to ask you about before we get to the kind of younger progressive movement in BDS, which I think it's important for us to talk about. You know, Dan, I myself, I want to take the opportunity of having you here to, to, to say how strange it is to me that, you know, I've taken certain positions, certainly on the Iran deal, but I had to be the public voice of the abstention on the UN Security Council resolution. For those who don't know, at the end of the Obama administration, we abstained on a resolution that essentially condemned Israeli expansion of Israeli settlements. Uh, it also uh, addressed Palestinian incitement, uh, but the blowback on this was extreme. And, you know, I was called everything in the book, and, and chiefly I was called an anti-Semite, and, and I felt, you know, it was almost like, you know, being a target of cyberbullying, you know, I, I felt like uh, I had a parade of of kind of pro-Netanyahu, pro-Trump people just, just trying to grind my reputation down and turn me into some anti-Israel, anti-Semite figure. And I wonder what you think, the is there a risk of that? I mean, that, that this kind of scorched earth approach to people with, with different views, doesn't that risk over time creating these fissures, you know, where you have people in the Democratic Party who just support a two-state solution. And if you're going to tar someone as anti-Israel, anti-Semite, just because you occasionally take positions that differ from the Israeli government, what does that do over time to the, the, the bonds that, you know, that have to exist in both parties? So, again, this is really where President Obama was coming from uh, at the time of the speech in, in the Iran deal. He, he said, look, this relationship has to be able to be sustained through changes of government and changes of administration and party uh, in both countries. And that's historically been the case. And there have historically been uh, strong Democratic and Republican administrations and, and majorities in Congress uh, and Likud and, and labor-led governments in Israel that kept the foundations of the, uh, of the relationship moving forward. If you get a kind of single-party identification uh, from one country to the other, 
when the pendulum inevitably swings, and yeah. we know it does in American politics, Israeli politics is, is a different story maybe, but it started to swing just this past November. Yeah. I mean, people will come in and, you know, they may remember that uh, they were treated as if their views, which are not anti-Israel, they yeah. uh, may disagree with certain Israeli policies, but were, were not welcomed. So I, I think it's wise to maintain that sense of proportion. I think it's wise for the Israeli government to uh, sustain uh, close ties with Democrats out of power, of course, now with the new majority uh, coming into the House. And to understand there's such a thing as being a supportive critic or a critical supporter. And that's, you know, the views of uh, people who criticize Israeli settlement uh, expansion. And, of course, that shouldn't be done in isolation. You've got to take account for Palestinian responsibility uh, as well. But those are views shared by many, many Israelis. The Iran deal may not have been popular with Israel, but there were in Israel, but there were a lot of Israelis, including a lot of Israeli security experts who understood the value of it or at least didn't want to see it canceled once it was in place. So these are not views that should be treated as – classified anyway as unfriendly or anti-Israel, but they are views that should be given the legitimacy of being part of of a camp of supporters of Israel's security, its legitimacy, the U.S.-Israel relationship, and the uh, effort to try to end the conflict with the Palestinians. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the U.N. Refugee Agency. The U.N. Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, Ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. 
It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crooked world. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash crooked world. Yesterday, I interviewed Congresswoman-elect Ilhan Omar from Minnesota, who she supports the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions, or BDS movement. Also, interestingly, her incoming colleague, Rashida Tlaib, has announced that she's going to lead a delegation of new members to the West Bank uh, and not go on the traditional APEC-sponsored trip to Israel during the August recess, which is actually a big deal in part because that trip is seen as influential, but it's often, as you know, led by leadership like Steny Hoyer or Kevin McCarthy. And so it's good politics for you inside your caucus to go on this. And some feel maybe pressured to go or think it's important to go. So I was hoping you could explain what the BDS movement is and why you think it's a bad strategy or a bad movement. And I also wonder if you think that there's the potential for a major shift in in sentiment in terms of U.S.-Israeli policy in Congress specifically. Yeah, I don't see a major shift. I mean, there are some new voices and there are at least a couple people who have articulated some support for BDS. Uh, I think there'll be in a tiny minority of uh, members of the new majority who will take that view. I do oppose uh, boycotts and divestment of sanctions against Israel. I think those are the wrong strategies. I think they're unfair. Uh, in many cases, not everybody, but there are people who uh, adhere to those tactics who I think fall into anti-Semitic attitudes and, and sort of delegitimization, not just of Israeli policy, but actually fully Israeli existence. Mm-hmm. And I think those are things that we as a party and uh, me personally as an American, I think we should oppose. So uh, that's, again, falls on the shoulders of people in the party like me uh, to make that argument to younger American voters, younger Democrats who don't know all of the history, don't know Mm -hmm. all of the reasons for Israel's existence, its legitimacy, the tragedies of Jewish history when there was statelessness for many Mm -hmm. centuries and the return to a a homeland, which, by the way, President Obama spoke so movingly about, including in the speech that, you know, Ben and I worked on together that he he made when he visited Israel in 2013, Mm -hmm. that those are important principles that uh, we we shouldn't uh, lose sight of. And you can uh, maintain fully those principles and also be fully committed to uh, the very legitimate aspirations Palestinians hold uh, for statehood, uh, for self-determination, and uh, when necessary, be critical of, of the Israeli contribution to the stalemate that's prevented that uh, from happening, while I think also being realistic about Palestinian contributions to that stalemate. Now, you know, the, vis- vis- the question of who goes on what trip, I think, is, is sort of uh, not that important. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think congressional travel is really important. Uh, you would host all these people. Back I, there, right? I must have hosted several hundred members of Congress uh, while I was ambassador, some on the APEC trips, some on J Street trips, some on trips just uh, under the congressional uh, authority, some mm-hmm. on their own. The important thing is to get out of Washington, is to go to the places where uh, you are going to need to cast votes uh, or or you're going to cast votes on policy issues that affect those questions. Talk to the people on all sides. Talk to the Israeli military commanders. Talk to the full diversity of Israeli political opinion. Talk to Palestinians. Uh, This is something that uh, we did and and President Obama always did uh, when he would get out there. And, you know, I have to say, you know, AIPAC has, has really made a commitment to try to do this in a bipartisan way. They do that. Uh, trip with a Republican version and a Democratic version. And, you know, their brand is, you know, it's a big tent and Mm -hmm. you can be 
in that tent of supporters of the relationship, but also uh, supporters of two states and even even a critic of certain policies. But, you know, J Street takes a somewhat different approach, but I think it's all valid and it's all it's all worthwhile to go. I hope that those members who say they're not going to go on those trips and they want to go and talk to Palestinians of the West Bank, which is a great thing to do, will also take the time to talk to Israelis uh, and hear their experiences and try to understand how it looks from their perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, a couple of things I want to probe on the tactics of opposition to BDS. Because, you know, I think we would all you know, believe that uh, going the full route of BDS against Israel does bleed into delegitimization, as you say. Uh, I think tactically, a couple of, of recent developments, I think, raise interesting questions, though. Um, one is Airbnb just decided to not list any more Israeli settlements. So basically, if you're going to the West Bank, Airbnb will no longer say, we're going to list properties in Israeli settlements in the West Bank. It's a way of registering concern about Israeli settlements. And the reaction to that you know, was largely negative, I think, from people who opposed BDS and essentially treated that as BDS. I think there's another argument, and, and J Street has made this argument, that uh, by essentially saying that some effort to delist properties in Israeli settlements, by saying that's the same thing that's tantamount to BDS, you're actually painting too broad a brush because people should be able to express some form of opposition to continued Israeli settlement construction. I'm curious what you think about you know, two angles of this. One is, what do you think about the Airbnb uh, decision? But secondly, do you have concerns that by equating Airbnb's decision with the broader BDS movement, that uh, suddenly you're creating too big a tent over BDS? You know, uh, in other words, if you're not allowing people the outlet to express some opposition to settlements, you might normalize, essentially, somebody as- affiliating with BDS, if you see what I mean. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure I understood the logic of a, of a company like Airbnb wading into these political waters. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm not sure that was the, uh, you know, the smartest thing for them to do. Obviously, anybody who doesn't feel comfortable uh, going to those properties uh, and, and renting them, you know, doesn't need to and can express their opposition to Israeli settlement uh, expansion uh, in that way. On the flip side, the criticism uh, of the company as somehow uh, anti-Semitic, I thought, was rather overheated. I mean, this is a company that, yeah. of course, is, has 20,000 rentals all over the state of Israel and, and many Israelis who are very you know, proud participants in that, uh, in that enterprise. So, you know, again, I'm not sure about as a corporate strategy yeah. it was the right thing to do. I, look, I, I think it's more than legitimate to be critical of Israeli settlement construction. And then, you know, for those who feel they need to express that and how they engage there, I think that's not the same as delegitimizing Israel through the yeah. the core of the BDS movement, which really has a series of principles that when you walk yes. through them, yeah. ultimately lead to having no uh, no Israel whatsoever. But I also think, you know, in the same way President Obama always preached engagement uh, with people you disagree with, uh, yeah. to learn from them, to try to convince them, to uh, have that dialogue, I think, uh, you know, sometimes uh, people who, who live in settlements or their advocates are, are sort of treated as some sort of untouchable outcast, and they shouldn't be. Uh, when I was ambassador, uh, I didn't travel to those parts of uh, the West Bank because it wasn't uh, part of my portfolio, uh, but I made time to spend uh, in conversation with uh, settlement leaders, their advocates, uh, their uh, representatives in the Knesset, 
because I felt it was uh, critically important that they hear directly from us why we uh, had concerns and for us to hear from them. And by the way, there's settlements and settlements. There are some settlements, which even in President Obama's uh, articulation of his principles, uh, which were the of the territorial outcome of 67 lines and mutually agreed swaps. The swaps were about taking in large Israeli communities near the border and compensating the Palestinians with land elsewhere. So, you know, knowing those nuances and getting down yeah. into those weeds, I think, is important and, and prevents you from these broad brush statements that delegitimize entire populations. Mm-hmm. And I guess the last question on this set of issues is, um, what do you say to the person who says, look, we keep saying we're against settlements, we keep saying we're for two-state solution, and nothing changes. In fact, all that's changing is they're building more settlements, they're taking more Palestinian land, more Palestinians are being displaced, the possibility of a two-state solution is getting out of reach. The Israeli government is now publicly saying that it's not going to happen on their watch. At what point do you shift from just engagement to some form of pressure, right? And there's lots of different kinds of pressure. There's BDS is the extreme version. Again, I think we're uncomfortable with that. But then you, know, you had the UN Security Council resolution kind of thing we passed. There's you know, various types of U.S. assistance that could be withheld. You know, how do you defend, I guess, a situation where the Israeli government is not responding to the United States' expressions of concern about settlement growth and the viability of a two-state solution. And yet, you know, it's very difficult in our politics to apply pressure on Israel. At what point do you have to consider applying some pressure? Or do you think that that's just kind of not on the table when it relates to the U.S.-Israel relationship? Look, uh, multiple administrations have imposed some forms of pressure. Uh, George H.W. Bush, who just passed away, uh, had a big fight uh, with Prime Minister Shamir over uh, providing loan guarantees to uh, help finance the housing of new immigrants uh, because of Israeli settlement construction. But the Clinton and Bush uh, Jr. administrations uh, had different approaches, but uh, often uh, found themselves criticizing, and even in places like the U.N., uh, Israeli settlement construction. Of course, the Obama administration, we have our, had our well-known arguments over it. It's legitimate for uh, the United States, separate country, our interests, which are very much uh, overlapping but not identical uh, to Israel, to articulate when we have a disagreement. I think we need to be realistic about what moves opinion uh, in Israeli politics. Uh, sometimes that pressure is uh, easy to to jujitsu against, uh, and it was against Obama yeah. in a way that mm-hmm. uh, only hardened attitudes. We also, as I said earlier, have to be uh, fully aware that there's a Palestinian actor here. Uh, and when you have a Palestinian leadership that uh, seems able and willing to tell hard truths to their people and uh, take risks uh, that I don't think we've seen so far from President Abbas, that that might uh, be a much more effective way of getting Israeli public to tell their own leaders we should uh, show new mm-hmm. flexibility. So there are a lot of different elements here. But you know, the United States can be a, a close and strong ally to Israel and also express our disagreements. And sometimes that will even take some forms of pressure. Yeah, Dan, I know you just recently flew from Tel Aviv to the U.S., and have not seen CNN on all day, every day for the last two years, but you might have heard that President Trump is in a little bit of legal jeopardy. It has jumped the pond. He might have made some mistakes, but he is not the only one. For the third time this year, the Israeli police have recommended that Prime Minister Netanyahu be charged with taking bribes, fraud, and breach of trust. Uh, Most recently, he was accused of performing favors for a media conglomerate in exchange for good coverage. President Trump, if you're listening, Crooked Media is open to that kind of deal. Dan, (laughs) how big a threat are are these charges for Bibi? And and is it like all-consuming in Israel the way that the Mueller stuff is for us? It's not that all-consuming, but it's a significant story. It's also a very long-running story. Their system moves very slowly. So these investigations have been going on for years. 
uh, as you mentioned, this is the third in a series of recommendations from the police that he be indicted for bribery. And this one is the most serious, the one you referenced about the alleged exchanges with the media company. And the foregone conclusion among most observers in the legal and in the political world in Israel is that he will be indicted at some point in 2019. Wow. The attorney general has to make that decision. The police recommendations don't uh, determine that. The attorney general who he appointed but is considered Is a, it Matt Whitaker? No, he's considered <laughs> a very serious, very thoughtful The parallels uh, are weird. Lawyer. There are yeah. some weird parallels. <laughs> yeah. But then if the attorney general decides to indict him, he has to have a hearing. And then there's a long, long legal process that follows. It could last many months, even even years. Meantime, 2019 is also an election year in Israel. The election has to be in November, but it could be earlier if the coalition uh, dissolves or, or if the prime minister decides to move it up. And so he could be running for re-election either under indictment or with this indictment bearing down on him. Sounds and, familiar to me. Yeah, yeah, but most observers would tell you he's probably going to win regardless wow. of whether he's indicted or, or not. Uh, he uh, retains a certain aura, uh, which he's cultivated very successfully, of indispensability, that there is nobody else who can manage all the different security challenges Israel faces from Syria and Iran and Hamas and Hezbollah mm-hmm. and Putin and Trump and all the crazy things that he has to deal with. Uh, he's marginalized a lot of the competition within his own party, pushed people out or, or cut them down to size. And the opposition uh, figures have not yet emerged uh, seemingly strong enough to uh, to displace him. Hmm. So, you know, that's a, a real unknown. Could he be reelected and then have to go through some legal process and would the court allow him to stay in office or would the public or would his coalition partners allow him to stay in office as an indicted prime minister? Israeli law is sort of unclear on those points. So it, there are some parallels. There are also some very idiosyncratic aspects to, this, to the Israeli system. And what a mess. It's, uh, it's quite, it is a quite a soap opera. There's, oh I mean, the other parallels you hear about from some critics of Netanyahu is that there have been democratic backsliding, that there's intimidation of the media or there's kind of consolidation in the media around kind of, you know, Israeli versions of Fox News (laughs) for Netanyahu. There's some uh, risks to civil society. How real is that Uh, as someone who lives there, is on the ground? I mean, how much of that is, you know, there's different political perspectives in Israel or or how much has there been some noticeable shift in terms of the media landscape, the civil society landscape, the political landscape, that it has some of the same type of authoritarian tendencies we're seeing here, you know, that Trump would like to do if he had his way. You know, I mean, you can sometimes hear those voices, but I think the impact on it has been quite limited. You know, periodically a, a sort of extreme piece of legislation is proposed in the Knesset. Uh, and, you know, we've if you look at our Congress, sometimes you yeah. see some really loony stuff that gets oh, yeah. uh, introduced there. And also, uh, in a similar way, if it ever passes, it's watered down to almost symbolic stuff and much of it never passes at all. And if you look at other democracies that are under some kind of stress to their institutions, Hungary or Poland or some of the other Eastern European uh, countries, I don't think Israel's in that category. It's very vibrant. Uh, The debate is freewheeling. Nobody holds back if they're a critic of Netanyahu or if they're a critic of his coalition. There may be people who would like to uh, try to stifle debate around that, but they haven't really been successful. The courts are still very independent. And, you know, eventually over time, you know, elections have consequences, yeah. uh, uh, as, you know, Trump can appoint Kavanaugh, yeah. Republic, uh, Likud prime ministers will avoid appoint judges. And so that may have that shift. But to say Israeli democracy is under uh, some kind of real threat, I think, would be a very, very exaggerated statement. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake-up call. 
If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Let me ask you guys about an entirely different mess. The New York Times ran a piece about Jared Kushner and his bizarrely cozy relationship with the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. Apparently, they text. They're on a first-name basis. They WhatsApp. Jared helps him cover up his international murders. So that's sort of how they got to know each other. It's so a typical friend stuff. When you read that piece, you know, wearing your hat as a former senior director for the Middle East and North Africa, as a former deputy national security advisor, did it make you cringe? I mean, what did you yeah. think about just freelance boy secretary of state in in the west wing banging around with the saudi account i you know it wasn't surprising to me and dan i don't know if you heard these things but uh, back in 2017 uh when i just left government i started to hear this you know what you would hear is that jared had been giving these accounts and that the saudis and emiratis in particular had made a full court press to essentially build these relationships with jared uh, Mohammed bin Salman, in particular from Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Zayed from the UAE and his ambassador in Washington. You know, they were socializing. They were kind of counseling him. Here's what you need to know about the Middle East. Oh, by the way, maybe we can discuss some real estate deals on the side. Um, <laughs> and, and it was clear that they took advantage of the fact that there was this guy, Jared, who was kind of a blank slate. Yeah. Uh, really, you know, naive in the ways of the world. No uh, experience dealing in international diplomacy. And, you know, essentially, Jared went all in with them. And that shaped his perspective on all these things. And you saw that, I think, manifested in Trump's first visit to Saudi Arabia, Mm -hmm. uh, that Jared played a key role in. You saw that, as we've discussed on this pod, Tommy, in the U.S. completely deferring to the Saudi position in taking the prime minister of Lebanon hostage in Riyadh and locking up members of MBS's own family in the Ritz, in the war in Yemen, uh, uh, most tragically and now manifest in the Khashoggi thing. And, and oftentimes in those disputes, Jared was out of step with the State Department. So on the dispute with Qatar, where Saudi Arabia basically tried to expel Qatar from the Gulf Cooperative Council and, and isolate them, you know, Rex Tillerson was trying to negotiate some resolution. Mm-hmm. And Jared was saying, no, no, we're all in with the Saudis, right? So I think that that article sums up what has been evident for two years, which is 
the Saudis and the Emiratis ran a very effective influence operation on Jared Kushner from the first day he, you know, he came into the White House. And I think the questions that need to be answered are, is there a financial component to that? Mm-hmm. Were they side dealing uh, on real estate transactions or prospective transactions uh, to get uh, him on board? Uh, because it's very obvious to anybody who's paying attention that there's something very strange about the way in which this White House is continuing to act as a defense attorney for someone who just murdered a journalist. And you can understand why the Saudis would find this to be a very uh, familiar and yeah. workable yeah. Right. Uh, arrangement. The son-in-law right? down the hall. It, it yeah. looks, it looks yeah. sort it's of familiar. Family. It's family it's a, business. It's a, fam- yeah. it's a family, yeah. it's right? Family. So a crown prince That's sees, how the UAE runs. That's how Saudi yeah, runs. sees sort of a counterpart, you know, an individual with a unique access to the leader uh, who can kind of make decisions that cut through the bureaucracy or bypass the bureaucracy completely. And so that's their system. That's not really our system. That's <laughs> not how our system mm-hmm. is supposed to work. So as an NSC alumnus, you know, it's kind of horrifying. The, the NSC exists to take in the uh, different perspectives of all the different agencies of the U.S. government, which will include uh, security and diplomacy and economics and other strategic questions, pool those perspectives, give the president options, and the president, you know, isn't going to be governed just by the views of one family member when uh, he makes those decisions. And, and, and so what the result was, of course, it did give the Saudis a blank slate, and they she took advantage of it on all of these very impulsive moves with Lebanon, Qatar, Yemen, and so mm-hmm. forth, uh, which have, uh, and obviously uh, culminating in, in Khashoggi's murder. So I, I think I said Lindsey Graham say that business as usual with the Saudis should be over until we pressure King Salman to name a new crown prince. Do you think that's a smart course of action, a feasible one? I don't think we should expect that we're going to be able to dictate who the ruler of Saudi Arabia is. You know, we've never been very good at regime change. The public or, coup business. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's, it doesn't work. And so I think we should be realistic. You know, I'm, I'm in the camp of people who think we, we do need a reliable Saudi partner. We need it for our own interests. We need it because we have a, a common threat that we're trying to deal with from Iran. And we need it because of the uh, role they play in energy markets. And we need it because of the role they could play to facilitate a greater progress on Israeli-Palestinian peace. So we need one. We don't have one. Right now we don't have a reliable Saudi partner because MBS is so uh, headstrong and so impulsive and there seem to be no constraints on its behavior. So, you know, there are, are certainly opportunities now to use the leverage we have. And we have more leverage in this relationship than they do uh, to set down some guidelines and say, you know, these are uh, expectations we have about how Saudi Arabia will behave in the region, about us not being surprised by various initiatives. And, you know, in the end, if uh, they decide MBS is going to be their ruler but can operate within those guidelines, you know, he's not going to get the, the blood stain out of his hand. But, you know, we may just have to, in the way we sometimes have to deal with uh, unsavory people, conduct that relationship. But if he can't respect those guidelines, then obviously this relationship is going to go uh, into a bit of a tailspin. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I thought we had a little more agency. We don't have to perpetrate regime change or a coup. I think we do have to remember that MBS has been destabilizing, right? It's not mm-hmm. been the natural course of events that he would accede to this position. He was named deputy crown prince, not crown prince. He took advantage of the fact that, frankly, his father is not well. Uh, his health is very poor. And he's essentially been ousting his critics. He ousted the person, Mohammed bin Naif, who was in line ahead of him. Uh, he ousted a lot of other family members uh, from Saudi positions of power. And he was you know, already facing, I think, a, a royal family that was uncomfortable with this move to one man, one rule. I think what Trump did is throw him a lifeline because essentially you have in Saudi mm-hmm. Arabia – a family that has generally governed on consensus. You know, there's always a king, but, you know, the family has to kind of get together and agree on things. 
And I think MBS was very vulnerable after the Khashoggi murder to the family getting together and saying, you know what, like this guy's gotten way too far ahead of his skis and we need to do something about Mm -hmm. this. And so I do think Trump threw him a lifeline. I think, you know, so it's not as simple as if, you know, we can say you must get another ruler. But I do think if we sanctioned MBS, Mm -hmm. right, and said we're going to suspend arms sales to Saudi Arabia and, and, and started to show that there's a cost to his brand of rule, I think that the likelihood that the family might have gotten together and said, you know what, we might need to to kind of figure out how to pull the levers and, and put this back in a box. I think that were, was certainly possible. And Trump, you know, instead has re-empowered him. And so I think that was a bit of a missed opportunity uh, to say, you know what, this guy is not leading you guys in the right place. And that's going to have consequences on our relationship with you. Yeah. I mean, imagine if we said your yacht can't float off the south of France anymore. With Jared on it. Yeah. Jared on it. Yeah. yeah. That might move. You the have deal. this vision of like a Wolf of Wall Street kind of scene with Jared and MBS, you know. <laughs> With some like billion dollar painting on the yacht, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, uh, that they're shooting fireworks at, or something. And, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, kind of grotesque. I mean, uh, there there have been these you know rumors of these visits Jared has taken to be on MBS's yacht, and and actually just that that image is kind of revolting. These two guys mm-hmm. who you know think that you know one of whom is you know was twenty nine uh, hmm. when he acceded to this position a few years ago, MBS, and the other of whom was you know kind of a you know, a sky of a New York real estate family thinking that, that they alone should be able to make these decisions about, you know, whole fates of nations is kind it's of, a, uh, uh, that's part of the problem. Dilettante, princeling bachelor party yeah. or something, yeah. Last question I have for you guys, I don't know if you have any more. I mean, so we're like seven, eight years past the Arab Spring. Syria is in very tough shape. Egypt is a mess. Libya is a mess. Uh, like, I'm wondering what, and I'm not saying that this was the result of U.S. policies. I'm sure there are things we could have done better, for sure. But knowing what we know now, I mean, what role do you think the U.S. can or should play in trying to help these countries put themselves back together? So I, you know, we've talked about this a bit, Tommy. I mean, I, you know, I do think fundamentally we have to recognize that what began in the Arab Spring, you know, there is a generational sorting that's going to take place inside of these countries that quick, relatively simple transitions to democracy were not possible in places that didn't have institutions and civil society, a place mm-hmm. like Libya where that had been hollowed out, that have deep unresolved questions about the role of Islam in politics, that have sectarian differences and conflicts. Um, so I do think it's going to take a long time for this to play out. And what we tried to do in the second Obama administration is try to minimize the humanitarian uh, harm that would come from these transitions to try to do what we could for our own interest and for the interests uh, of these countries to take out the most extremist violent entities like ISIS and to try to continue to throw lifelines to people who are trying to move in the right direction, mm-hmm. uh, either people in government trying to do the right thing or people in civil society, so that the U.S. is playing some role over time in minimizing the you know, the security and humanitarian fallout of these transitions and trying to find ways to empower uh, more positive actors in these countries. I personally think that we have to have a tremendous amount of humility about it. I mean, one of our other former colleagues, Phil Gordon, had a pretty famous quote that I'm not going to get exactly right, but essentially, we invaded and occupied Iraq and it ended up being a disaster. We did regime change in Libya with a light you know, footprint and it was a disaster. And we didn't go into Syria and it was a disaster. It, the point being that we sometimes think we have more agency than we do. You mm-hmm. know, that if we had moved 
you know, the rook to a certain place on the chessboard, these countries would be different. I, I personally think we have to have a tremendous amount of humility about our capacity to orchestrate events inside of these countries. Um, we can affect their decision-making. We can affect, you know, our interest and, in, you know, whether Iran develops a nuclear weapon, but our capacity to shape what government emerges. I mean, this is what part of gets me about the, the current Iran strategy, the notion that some mix of sanctions and rhetoric is going to somehow lead to this new Iranian government. I mean, there's no way. In fact, I think if we somehow did squeeze Iran to a regime change point, the, the worst people would take over there. Mm-hmm. You know, So again, my, my main takeaway is having humility about what can be accomplished. That doesn't mean you don't care and you don't try, but it means that you, know, you probably don't overreach and make mistakes of intervention and, and that you just find entry points to, to try to move things in a better direction. I shared the lesson of humility from our experiences with those changes in the Arab world that started in 2011. And you can definitely say there are things we could have done differently and could have done better, but you also have to you know, balance that against the cost. And part of this is the uh, residue uh, or the long-term price we paid for Iraq, which went so poorly. There may have been a time when a certain kind of intervention in yeah. Syria uh, would have been appropriate, and we might have been able to save lives, but we also might have been pulled into something very long and very deep, and it was very clear that the American people and the Congress uh, you know, were not on board for that. So we maybe had some limited options because of that. But even then, it's not clear where that would have led. Uh, we, our ability to shape the outcomes of these societal transformations, I agree with Ben, is, uh, is quite limited. And then there are cases where we really have to balance different interests. Egypt is a great example mm-hmm. where we're clearly dealing with now a very repressive uh, CC government, uh, more repressive in some ways even than the Mubarak government was uh, be- before the Arab Spring. And uh, civil society is being uh, pushed underground and any even peaceful voices of opposition are, are being stifled. Probably it's going to be a powder keg and it's and sowing the seeds for the next explosion, the next resolution. So we need to be a voice and a critic and, uh, and try to empower those elements of civil society. But all that said, at the same time, Egypt remains a security partner. It's a security partner for the United States against ISIS. It's a security partner of Israel uh, against Hamas and uh, maintaining the peace treaty with Israel. And so figuring out how to balance when we have an interest for with uh, working with a regime that is far from ideal, but trying to do what we can to uh, give lifelines and, and give support to, to other elements of that society without empowering the, the radicals, that's a, a very tough challenge for any uh, national security professional. Yeah. Damn right. Dan, it is great to have you in L.A. Love to be here. Uh, We're hoping uh, we're going to ask that you move here and send it back to Washington and you decide to return. The climate's a lot more like Israel, so it's tempting. There you go. Ben, Dan, thank you both for uh, talking and see you next week. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks. morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. 
Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley, in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.